0: Hey, creep, I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant, it may not end the way you want it to, but this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is, shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. The year was 1965, and Sylvia had just had her sweet 16. Cookie, as her family had affectionately nicknamed her, had long, wavy, brunette hair and a lovable, endearing smile. Despite a missing front tooth, she lost horsing around with her brother. Sylvia had four siblings, and she was the middle child. Before her had come a pair of fraternal twins, Diana and Daniel, And just a year after she was born, her parents, Lester and Elizabeth Likens, gave birth to Jenny and Benny. Sylvia's younger sister, Jenny, had been diagnosed with polio at a young age, but Sylvia had taken it upon herself to care for her and make her feel as normal and as much a part of the family as any of the other children by spending her babysitting money on trips for the two of them to the local skating rink. Here, Sylvia would fasten one skate to Jenny's strong foot and holding her hand so that she could skate with Sylvia and the other kids. Money was tight. Elizabeth and Lester were carnival workers which required them to move and relocate constantly, putting stress on the already tight shoestring budget of the family. But between Sylvia's babysitting and odd jobs and her care for Jenny and the boys Daniel and Benny helping Lester, their father, with his work, the family made it work, and most importantly, they loved each other. But on June 3, 1965, life turned sour for the Lykins family, when Elizabeth Lykins, Sylvia's mother and caretaker at the time, was arrested and subsequently jailed for shoplifting. Lester was working and was unable to care for the additional children. He already had Benny, Daniel, and Diana, and worried that the carnival scene would be too rough and dangerous for the impressionable young girls. And on July 4th, Lester Lycan, Sylvia's father, arranged for Sylvia and her younger sister Jenny to stay with the Banaszewski family. Sylvia was used to boarding with friends and family members while her parents' transient work took them across the country. And this was nothing new. They had previously stayed with their grandmother, among others, for a period of months. But this was last minute. Elizabeth was arrested, which had left the two beautiful young girls uncared for and unattended. Sylvia and Jenny had met Paula and Stephanie Baniszewski at school and they had all gotten along well, becoming quick and close friends, gossiping about boys and spending time together. Lester and Elizabeth had met their single mother Gertrude Baniszewski as well and had found her kind and agreeable. So when on short notice Lester needed boarding for his two young daughters and when Gertrude agreed to care for them as if they were her own... Lester felt certain and trusted the girls would be well looked after. But you can't trust appearances, creep. You can't trust the words from a friend's mouth. You can't truly know what's happening in their mind, behind smiling eyes. You can't truly ever know every dark corner of another human. I'm not a parent, but it's moments like these when I'm about to tell you what exactly came next that I fear the responsibility of a parent. The idea that my decisions, no matter how benign they feel in the moment, could cascade and cause irreparable damage. That one day I might let my child sleep over at a neighbor's house and something terrible might happen. Something that no matter the amount of stranger danger, no talk about drugs or sex could ever educate them to what the less than human among us are capable of. The first weeks that Sylvia and Jenny lived with Gertrude and her family were happy and comfortable. Sylvia and Jenny sang along to pop records and danced around gossiping about boys with Paula and Stephanie. And they even bonded with the younger children in the Banazuski family, becoming close and treating them with the care of an older sibling themselves. Lester Likens had agreed to send Gertrude $20 a week for the care of his daughters, to help with rent and the cost of food, as well as anything Jenny and Sylvia might need for school. But Lester's weekly payments began to get increasingly unreliable. His work was unstable and seasonal. Some weeks were worse than others, and Lester would have to delay his payments based on the money he would make working concession at the traveling carnivals. And what began as $20 a week for boarding turned to $20 every week and a half. And sometimes the money never came at all. Gertrude was suffering financially. She was a single mother with seven children. And now with Sylvia and Jenny that made nine children to feed and still keep up rent payments. Gertrude began to vent her frustration and panic by beating Jenny and Sylvia on the bare buttocks with her hand and often a paddle. During the first spanking, Gertrude dragged Jenny up the stairs and whipped her with a leather belt while screaming, "'Well, I took care of you two little bitches for a week for nothing.'" Gertrude Banazuski began to focus her abuse exclusively upon Sylvia. Jenny, Sylvia's little sister, was a cripple. She had a limp from childhood polio, but Sylvia was a beautiful young woman and presumably Gertrude's jealousy towards the young physically attractive and vibrant girl was her initial motivation. Gertrude herself was getting older. She was 36, but looked twice that age. Her body wasn't what it once was after giving birth to so many children, as well as suffering six miscarriages. She was described as a haggard old looking asthmatic. She was only five foot six, but she weighed a hundred pounds. There was nothing endearing about her physical, ghoulish appearance or the way she carried herself, unlike Sylvia, who seemed to her to be her opposite in all things' appearance. The day after the first spanking, the money arrived in the mail as promised. And a few days later, hoping to get ahead of the payments and to make sure their children were well taken care of, Lester and Elizabeth Likens, who was now free from jail, came to hand deliver an advance payment for the coming week before both Lester and his wife Elizabeth headed back out of town for work. Sylvia and Jenny said nothing, presumably not wanting to put undue strain on their parents over one, albeit malicious, spanking. But the spanking wasn't even a drop, compared to the ocean of torment Sylvia was soon to be subjected to. The spankings became more and more frequent, and for any reason, all unwarranted, of course. On one occasion when Gertrude learned Sylvia was recycling pot bottles for cash, she beat her across the back and head repeatedly with a quarter-inch wooden paddle. And when Gertrude became winded and tired due to her chronic bronchitis, she handed off the paddle to her daughter, Paula, to continue punishing Sylvia. By August, things were escalating exponentially and Sylvia's safety was in constant jeopardy. Gertrude had been told Sylvia had a boyfriend in California by one of the other children in the home. And Gertrude, disgusted, said, You're certainly getting big in the stomach, Sylvia. It looks like you're going to have a baby. Sylvia apparently assumed Gertrude was kidding with her and said, Yeah, it sure is getting big. I'm just going to have to go on a diet. In response, Gertrude began to beat Sylvia and forced her to confess, but she wasn't alone. Once again, Paula, Sylvia's friend and Gertrude's daughter joined in, repeatedly kicking Sylvia in the vaginal area and accused her of being pregnant and expressing her disgust at a young unwed woman being pregnant. Ironically, at the time, Paula was pregnant herself by an already married man. Gertrude had been in three abusive marriages, including two marriages with the same man. She had felt pushed and prodded her entire life. She was living in squalor and in a home she rented for $55 a month. The abundance of children created an environment of constant filth that she just couldn't keep up with. Lester Lycan had never stepped foot in the Banazuski home, but if he had, he would have found Sylvia and Jenny sharing a room with the two other children with one mattress that they all took turns sleeping on. Maybe Gertrude couldn't come to grips with how her life had turned out. Perhaps she punished Sylvia for her father's mispayments instead of blaming herself for not being able to financially and adequately care for her many children. Perhaps when she accused Sylvia of being pregnant and beating her for it alongside Paula, she was envisioning her own daughter in that moment. I don't know, and I don't care to delve any deeper into a mind as sadistic and twisted as Gertrude's. You and I cannot begin to fathom the twisted morals and ethics she held. As rational creeps, you and I can see right from wrong. Gertrude clearly could not. And like a plague, this lack of empathy and irrational and cruel treatment of Sylvia soon spread to her children and beyond. Soon after, as the family sat down for dinner... Paula, Gertrude, and a neighborhood boy named Randy Lepper began to force-feed Sylvia with a hot dog drenched in mustard, ketchup, and spices. They shoved it into her mouth and down her throat and continued feeding her until she vomited, and then later they forced her to eat her own vomit. As summer faded, the abuse and humiliation of Sylvia Likens at the hands of Gertrude did not. Fall was fast approaching, and the children returned to school, which promised some respite from the torture for Sylvia. Perhaps in her only moment of retaliation, or perhaps not at Sylvia's doing at all, it's unclear. Rumors began to spread around Arsenal Technical High School, the same school that both Sylvia and Jenny and Stephanie and Paula Banazuski went to. The rumor was that both Stephanie and Paula were prostitutes. One day at the beginning of the school year, Stephanie was jokingly propositioned by a boy for sex, who confessed to her that Sylvia had started the rumor that she was in fact a prostitute. Later that day back at home, Stephanie confronted Sylvia about the rumor, which she, allegedly by Stephanie's account, admitted to starting. Stephanie in a rage punched her and Sylvia apologized, gasping for breath and stunned from the punch and in tears. Soon after, though, Stephanie's boyfriend, 15-year-old Coy Hubbard, soon found out about the rumor and brutally attacked Sylvia Likens as Stephanie watched. Coy grabbed her head and smashed her face against the walls, slapped her repeatedly and flipped her backwards onto the floor. And then Gertrude beat her with the paddle once more. A little while after, as a punishment and perhaps for the rumor, Paula beat Sylvia with such animalistic force, she broke her own wrist. But it didn't end there. Upon arriving home after having a cast put on her wrist, Paula used the cast to further batter Sylvia. That's when Gertrude began to force Jenny to partake. Gertrude smacked Sylvia with the paddle, screaming her misogynistic sermons at her, telling her of the filthiness of prostitution and of the evil of women in general. That's when she began to threaten Jenny, forcing her to hit Sylvia. And if Jenny wouldn't do that, then Gertrude would have to beat her. Sylvia's escape to school every day, her moment to breathe away from the hell she was living in, was eventually stripped from her. Sylvia required a gym suit for gym class, and afraid to ask Gertrude, after she had been repeatedly told no and beaten, had taken one from the lost and found. But Gertrude found the gym clothes and beat Sylvia with a police belt. Stephanie, who remained removed from the abuse despite her inaction to stop her boyfriend from viciously attacking her, or when she punched Sylvia for spreading a malicious rumor, jumped in between Gertrude and Sylvia, screaming she didn't do anything. Gertrude, though, would not be deterred by her daughter's pleas in Sylvia's defense and use matches to burn Sylvia Lycan's fingertips instead. Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, and several of his classmates began to visit the Banazuski home frequently to verbally and physically abuse Sylvia, often joining in with the younger Banazuski children and Gertrude. They beat her, threw her about while practicing their judo, cut her and burnt her with lit cigarettes more than 100 times. But it gets even worse. Gertrude invited Coy and his band of teenage psychopaths over one day and for entertainment forced Sylvia to strip naked in the living room and insert an empty Coca-Cola bottle into herself as they all watched. That included Jenny who was forced to look. Gertrude then stated that it was to prove to Jenny what kind of a girl Sylvia actually was. Eventually, the brutal and humiliating torture caused Sylvia to become incontinent. She was not allowed to use the bathroom like a human and forced to wet herself. In a sick game of what came first, the chicken or the egg, Gertrude decided that Sylvia wasn't potty trained and could no longer remain upstairs where she would pee herself. And on October sixth, was forced into the basement and tied up, naked, rarely fed, and denied water. And then they started charging neighborhood children five cents a head to go into the basement to view the naked Sylvia. And before leaving, they would often beat, scald, burn, and humiliate her. Towards the end of October, Sylvia's torment reached a fever pitch. She had been let out of the basement and allowed periodically back upstairs, but now Gertrude screamed for Sylvia to return to the kitchen. Sylvia, spiritually and emotionally shattered, did as she was told. There, in the kitchen, Gertrude ordered her to strip naked once more, before saying, You have branded my daughters. Now I am going to brand you. And with a knife, she began to carve. I am a prostitute and proud of it into Sylvia's abdomen with a heated needle. Gertrude, winded and tired, ordered a neighborhood child, 14-year-old Richard Hobbs, to finish etching the words into Sylvia's flesh, which he did. Later that day, Gertrude forced Sylvia to show off the inscription to the neighborhood kids, saying that Sylvia had received it at a sex party. Later that night, Sylvia looked to her sister and said, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell. And tragically, Sylvia was right. If you're listening to me, and I wouldn't blame you if you've stopped by now, creep, you might be wondering why now, after previous episodes, where I've excluded excessive descriptions of torture, would I not be in this case? Trust me when I say this. The torture and murder of Sylvia Likens is the most stomach-turning, disgusting, and horrific case I've researched yet. It's been uncomfortable to say the least to research and relay to you the information. But there is a reason I think it's necessary. Sylvia and Jenny were afraid. They were afraid if they told an adult at school that they'd be dismissed or punished. They were afraid to fight back. They were slowly and methodically made to feel powerless, through no fault of their own. This isn't just a cautionary tale about entrusting your children to the wrong people. This is about abuse, whether that's domestic by a partner or a spouse, or by a caretaker. No one deserves this. No one deserves to be made to feel powerless and humiliated like they're less than human. Sylvia was a well behaved and wonderful young woman by all accounts, and perhaps it was her unwillingness to inconvenience her parents or her teachers that let this story slowly devolve into what it quickly became. But that's not her fault. No one deserves to be abused, or hurt, or humiliated, or to be treated any less than equal by anyone. No one has that right to treat you that way, not a parent. Not a teacher, not a coach, not your husband, wife, or partner. Absolutely no one is any better or more than any other human being born into this world. And I hope all of you, all of my creepy friends that tune in each week, know that. No matter how small or powerless you feel, you have the right to be human. Tell someone, someone will believe you. If you feel they won't scream it from the rooftops, tell your family, tell your teacher, tell your parents, tell whoever it is you think might help you. Call the police. You are loved and you are wanted in this world. I don't want to, but I need to finish the story through to the end. And I hope you'll stick with me. By October 26th, Sylvia was unable to speak or move her limbs the way she wanted them to. When Gertrude tried to feed her, she was unable to eat. When she tried to drink a glass of milk, she wasn't able to move it to her lips. Sylvia was thrown into the basement in frustration, and Gertrude stamped on her head before leaving. Stephanie looked on in horror, and not absolving her of her sins in what happened to Sylvia, But being the beacon of compassion once again in this brief, brief moment, reached down and lifted Sylvia up and began carrying her up the stairs to give her a warm, soapy bath. But before she could reach the top of the stairs, Sylvia stopped breathing. Stephanie tried giving her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, frantically trying to save Sylvia's life while Gertrude shouted and stamped around the house, telling all those present Sylvia was obviously faking. Gertrude then took a book and struck Sylvia Lichen's corpse across the face twice, only then believing she had passed away. And Paula, like some fanatical backwater preacher clutching a Bible, proclaimed to all in the house that Sylvia's death was meant to happen, before calmly looking at Jenny and saying, If you want to live with us, Jenny, we will treat you like our own sister. Much later that day at 5.30pm, Richard Hobbs, the boy who had finished etching words with a needle into Sylvia's stomach, saw Stephanie in the basement crying and holding Sylvia's emaciated and mutilated corpse. But Gertrude had one trick up her sleeve and Richard Hobbs had come over under order from Gertrude. He was then told to go call police from a nearby payphone, and she put her plan into action. Police arrived at the home shortly after 6.30, where Gertrude graciously led the officers to Sylvia, lying dead and mutilated on a soiled mattress, before handing them a letter she had forced Sylvia to write. The letter read, To Mr. and Mrs. Likens, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night and they said they would pay me if I would give them something so I got in the car and they all got what they wanted and when they got finished they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. They also put on my stomach. I am a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything that I could do just to make Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she's got. I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I have also cost Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all her kids. Jenny, under the instruction of Gertrude, then recited the rehearsed version of events to police, but out of earshot, whispered to the officers, you get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. And Jenny did. She told them everything. Finally. Police arrested Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, and John Baniszewski, Gertrude's 12-year-old son, within hours of the discovery of her body. The same day, Coy Hubbard and Richard Hobbs were arrested, and on October 29th, five neighborhood kids were also arrested and charged, Michael Monroe, Randy Lepper, Darlene McGuire, Judy Duke, and Anna Sisko, although all five of these children were released into custody of their parents under subpoena to appear as witnesses. Stephanie also appeared in court as a witness, after her attorney successfully argued the state had no evidence to suggest she was involved. To her credit, albeit small, she waived her immunity from any potential impending persecution as a result of her witness testimony. The trial lasted 17 days, and on May 19, 1966, Gertrude Baniszewski was found guilty of first-degree murder. Paula was found guilty of second-degree murder, and Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Banazuski were found guilty of manslaughter. Gertrude and Paula were sentenced to life imprisonment. Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Banazuski each received a mere 2 to 21 years to be served in Indiana Reformatory. Unfortunately, as is often the case, justice here seemed to be short-lived as Gertrude, the conductor of this whole horrific affair, had become a model prisoner and was granted parole. She was released from prison on December 4, 1985, a mere 19 years served of the sentence of life imprisonment for the torture and murder of Sylvia Likens. End to end on a somber note, if you live in Iowa and have come across a woman named Paula Pace with a daughter named Gertrude, well, you might have met Paula Banazuski herself as she was released from prison on parole in 1972 before assuming a new identity. So, Creep, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed today's story, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in increasing the audience and getting these stories out. And more importantly, every single five-star review gets me one step closer to getting out of my mother's basement. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by myself, Cole Weavers, and production and editing by Matt Black. And remember, creeps, Take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the door.